You know, it's funny because the um, titles in the Bible, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, depending on what translation you're reading, were an afterthought. Did you know that? Somebody went in and they added these little numbers, verses, and they added these little titles. And so because of that, they're not technically part of the canon of Scripture. So the canon of Scripture just means all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so sometimes these funny little titles um, can actually throw you off. Did you know that? So what's interesting is um, the versification, or when they put verses in the Scriptures. I think it was a good thing on one hand because we can find specific little passages, but a negative was we can suddenly take one little, uh, a little verse from one little place and pull it way out of context and slap it over here and say it means this, which can be dangerous, right? The same thing is really true with these little titles. So in, in my Bible, I'm reading the NIV just like Grant did, but it literally says the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son. Now, these are not three separate parables. Believe it or not, they are one parable. And those little titles actually throw us off just a little bit. So what you have to do when you get into a parable is you actually have to go, really, who is Jesus talking to? And then why is he talking to them this way? What is he trying to say to the crowd? So the first thing we really have to look at is, is what did he start with? Where, where did this first verse begin? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering. So we got angry Pharisees and teachers. This man's welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so what we have going on here is a party. Can I put it that way? A celebration. So literally, Jesus is in some kind of house, some kind of structure, and he is um, having dinner. He is eating with tax collectors and with sinners. Okay? And then you have the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who are outside, and they are looking in at the party, and they are grumbling. They are angry. Follow me? So I think what's fascinating, too, as you look at this, is you would have to go a parable... Um, is not a, a sermon. We tend to think of it that way in America. We think anytime we're going to read a parable, we're going to read a sermon. Not so. A parable is something that Jesus would actually use to bring whoever was listening to him to a point of decision. Really a, a watershed, if you would think of it like that. So um, I actually think about the, uh, the Continental Divide in the Rocky Mountains. And there's a great continental divide that goes from the, uh, North America all the way into South America. It actually starts way up in Alaska and goes down through Canada, down through America, all the way through Central and South America, and ends at the Strait of Magellan um, in, at the very, very, very point way down in South America. And what happens is water that falls on one side of that divide goes to the Atlantic Ocean, and water that falls on the other goes to the Pacific Ocean. And so you have Christ Jesus, this brilliant communicator, Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And he is literally bringing every person who is listening to him to a point of decision. He is bringing them to a, to a sort of the great um, hydraulic divide, like the Continental Divide, where they have to make a decision one way or another. So, so I think another thing is we tend to think of Jesus as weak and as um, he's painted as sort of because he was kind, because he was gentle, because he was compassionate, that he's sort of... And I think that's not so. When you begin to understand the parables, he's actually in some cases using the parables like a sword to divide. Think of Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts 
and the intentions of the heart. So you have Christ Jesus who's telling these stories on this day, and his whole point is actually to take a sword and divide and bring people to a point of decision. Think about uh, John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus and the Word. So when Jesus is speaking the Word, the Bible that we're now reading, he is literally using words sort of as a watershed to bring people to a point of decision. Matthew 10.34 gives Christians tough time all over the place, but he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He's talking about this. He's talking about bringing people to this watershed where they have to make a decision one way or another. And that's what's happening in our text here this morning. So I think, you know, what's fascinating is he's literally telling a story that in the end comes back and sort of sideswipes everybody. He's brilliant. He's beginning with the end in mind. You might think Stephen Covey came up with that in the whenever he did, the 80s or something, but he didn't, I assure you. Christ Jesus was the original storyteller, and when he told the sto- any story he was telling, it was literally something that at the end, it would come back and sort of catch everybody by surprise. It was an aha. One Bible scholar that I love says a parable is a story with a sting in its tail. I love that. A parable is a story with a sting in its tail. So the question then that we have to look at as we dig into uh, the 15th chapter of Luke, which I appreciate you reading all of that, Grant, and uh, you may have noticed that we're breaking the rules and reading big chunks of Scripture, and we go, hey, we're a church, right? Let's read the Bible. Man. So uh, here it is. We have two groups. So who's present? Jesus is inside a house. He's sitting in this house, and he's literally breaking bread, and he's eating, and there's laughing, and there's joy going on inside this house. And who's he's with? Tax collectors and, let's say that again, tax collectors and sinners. sinners. He's literally inside celebrating. Now, in order to understand tax collectors, I don't even know that we as Americans can, can get our head around this, but I'm going to try in a, in a minute. Um, <laughs> here's what we'd have to imagine. We would have to imagine that another nation came in and conquered America. So another nation would have had to literally come over and wiped out America, taken us by force, and then all of our money is now being given by tax to that nation, which is across the ocean. So then there's those among us who are sitting among us who we've called friends who have said, hey, I'll be a tax collector for this foreign nation if I can skim off the top. So the foreign nation goes, hey, as long as I get this amount, you can collect any amount you want at sword point. As long as you send this X amount across the ocean, whatever it is, to our nation, you can keep anything you want. So what happens is you have these people who are tax collectors who are, they are literally, um, they would be seen as horrible traitors. Like you would hate them because they're stealing your money and then they're sending it to the nation who conquered us. I mean, the, the, the level of hatred for tax collectors would have been so high. Like it would have been, eh. They're traitors against our country. They're traitors against our people. And not only that, they're usually big, living in the big house down the street because they're skimming off the top. Does that make sense? So Jesus is hanging out with the people who are hated by everyone in the land. Then the other category is sinners. Who are sinners? Sinners are probably the hardworking people who have gone, man, the law of Moses is so crazy, and then the Pharisees have added like some 5,000 other laws, and this is nuts. I can't live all this, so I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want whenever I want to do it. That's who sinners are. Sinners would have included people like prostitutes. Sinners would have been anybody who's gone, I'm not going to the synagogue anymore. I can't figure all this out. I'm just living my life my way, doing what I want to do when I want to do it. 
So Jesus is having a party with those people. And who's on the outside? Pharisees and teachers. And they're refusing to go in. And they're looking from the outside in with great criticism, with ugliness, muttering, slandering, anger, whatever's going on in their hearts. Now, here's the thing. You have two groups of people. Sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, teachers. And then we read a parable that is introduced with two stories. A lost sheep and a lost coin. And then Jesus goes on to talk about two brothers. Now, stay with me here. Go back to the first. Two groups of people that are standing with Jesus. One group of people has been lost in the far country. The ones who are sinners. They're out there, right? They're lost out there and they know they're lost. The lost sheep. The second group of people, the Pharisees, they're like the lost coin. Where are they lost? Come on, go with me. Where's that lost coin lost? In the house. Two groups of people, two intro stories, lost sheep, lost in the far country, lost coin, lost right here at home, and then two sons. One lost where? In the far country. The other son, where's he lost? In the home. So you have two stories, two brothers, two groups. And so Jesus is literally skillfully bringing this, this group of people and he's telling them this story and he's bringing them to this watershed point so that each of them has to stand before him in some sense and make a decision on that day. It's brilliant. So instead of getting up, and I, I just think of myself, if I was in this situation, I think I'd probably want to go out and mouth off to the Pharisees. You big meanies. You know, or, or go and you know, talk to the people in the park. I don't know what I do, but here is Jesus. He does neither of those things, and he begins by drawing everyone into this story. A story about a lost sheep, a story about a lost coin, and then a story about two sons. Now, the story about two sons, in my opinion, is probably inaccurately named. It would have been much better if we would have named this the self-righteous brother. Because the point is actually not the one who was lost, the prodigal, but the point is actually the, the lost in the, far, in, in, the, in the woodlands, in the faraway places. The point is the one who was lost at home. Now, I, I think we also could have been accurate if it was named um, Two Lost Brothers. That would be a good way to look at it. Two Lost Brothers. But you have two stories, two brothers, and two groups. So let's talk about it. Um, we have a son. I'm going to jump right into what we call the prodigal son story. But we have uh, this son, and he comes to his father, and he says, I want um, my share of the estate. In those days, two-thirds of the estate would have gone to the older brother. One-third would have gone to the younger brother. A, a father in this day and time would have had the freedom to either give it and disperse his wealth when he died, or he could disperse his wealth at any point in time and sort of choose to retire and just go on and let his, his boys or son or family or whatever provide for him. So when this younger son comes and says, I want, he's, he's in some ways saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want to cash in on my chips now. Highly offensive. I want my part of the estate now. And then surely, 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 this father knows what's in the heart of this guy, Right? It's his son, he knows. I mean, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what he's going to do, what's in his heart, and what is brewing and what is happening here. 
So the father graciously gives his younger son probably a third of the estate. And I think I'd, I'd say a couple of comments just as we move through the story here. When you have someone who's always saying, give me, give me, give me, watch out. Watch out. We all go through it in our spiritual journey, but it is an indicator. It's neat that by the end of the story, you have the younger son coming around saying, forgive me. Yeah, forgive me. I think the other thing that I would just point out here that's, that's essential is when we have to have something now. So when it becomes this, I have to have it now, whatever it is. New pair of shoes, new car, new boat, new house, new shirt, new, I don't know, you fill in the blank. But whenever you have to have something now, it is almost assuredly not God. Abby and I have this funny little thing in our marriage, but anytime we want something, we refuse to buy it now. Because it's going to be there in two days or five days or two weeks or one month, right? So let's just think about it. Because I don't like being marketed to. And I don't like being sucked in. Because in that moment, it's like, oh, man, I really do need that now. That's so perfect. We've got to have it. It's going to change our life. It'll never be the same. Everything's going to be good once we have that in our life, right? I mean, it'll fix everything. Watch that. Watch that. When you need something now. So the father gives a third of his estate to the younger son, and the, and the younger son goes out and lives wildly, is what the scriptures say. We don't know all that that means, but I can tell you what was going on um, in the days um, around Galilee, the region where this story was told. It was truly wild living. Wild, gnarly living. I don't even think we need to get into it. But the son goes out, and I think the other thing that I... Um, I don't even know how to quite put into words, but I think it's at least worth... Uh, paying homage to a second is there comes a point as a parent where you have to know when to say son or daughter go go and there has, to, there has to be a point at which when you let a son or daughter go that you are willing to let them return home and help them clean up whatever mess they have then made and, and I think that's probably, um, we have young teenagers, but I think that's probably one of the greatest um, challenges as parents is to let a son or daughter go. And I'm not telling you what age that should be done or how that should be done, but I know that there's a space and a place that when as a parent you're actually able to release them and then open your arms when they return, no matter how bad they've messed their lives up, that that's powerful, and that's real love. I sat with somebody having lunch this week, and they couldn't, uh, um, they're struggling to, be <clears throat> to believe in Christ. And it was, why doesn't he come back and fix everything? And this was my answer. Because God is love, and with love comes freedom. See, it's that father. Maybe one of the most powerful things in the story is this father releases the younger son to go and then welcomes him back when he comes back. Some of you may be in the midst of that even right now. I don't know. But if you are, may God encourage your heart with hope that whoever that person in your family is will come home, first to him and then to you. So the son is out living in this wild, far country, and 
there's a famine, and all of a sudden, you know, he's got all sorts of friends. When you've got money to spend, guess who's your friend? Everybody, right? You can go make friends everywhere. And that money comes to an end, and all of a sudden there's a famine, and this son is now hungry, and he ends up living with pigs. Now, what that says to me is a couple of things. Um, pigs in Jewish culture are so, uh, they're unclean in the Mosaic law, but they are so, they're like unthinkable. Uh, a, a really Orthodox or Hasidic Jew would not even talk about a swine or a pig. It wouldn't even mention them. It is unthinkable. So the idea that this boy has now gone and he is literally, you get this idea of him sitting in the mud next to the pig, sitting in the feces of the pigs. He has come to an absolute and total end of his self-respect. He is at the, his wit's end. And then he's, it literally says he longs to fill his stomach with the pods. Those are carob pods, most likely, in the Mideast. You may even have um, pods, uh, you may have used carob. They grind it, it's like in the legume family, and they grind it up and use it as a chocolate substitute. You familiar with that? Anyway, he longs to eat these things, but they're so hard. There's these twisted, gnarly, hard things, and you can't eat them. It's impossible. So you have this younger son who's coming to the end of himself. He's longing to eat these carob pods. And finally, it says, in our translation, what Grant read was that he... Um, Let's see, he came to his senses. The ESV actually says he came to himself. And I love that because I think before you can come home to God, you've got to come to yourself. You've got to know maybe the depth of selfishness in your own heart. You've got to grasp that so you can then go home and say, Lord, forgive me. So he comes to himself and he literally goes, you know what, I could go home and he comes up with this thing that he's going to say. I, can, I could become one of my father's hired servants. And so he begins this journey home. And the next few uh, passages I just love. It moves my heart every time I read it. Because you, you have this son who's a long way off. You think of him on the horizon in Israel. There's not lots of trees, so you could have seen him potentially a mile or more away, a couple miles maybe. And so he sees his son, and he's been waiting all this time. And the son may have forgotten that dad, but I assure you that that dad never forgot the son. And so he's a long way off, and he sees the son, and he literally runs to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever, if you live in Wilmington, you have to have driven down I-40 and smelled the pigs. Have you? That boy would have been gnarly smelling like the pigs. And that father goes running out and meets him while he's still a long way off. And it literally says he grabs him and he would have kissed his face, kissed his neck, that stinky, dirty neck. Dr. Olson sitting here told me some stories about tending sheep, but the pigs are the same way. They're just even worse than sheep, I think. They're so stinky. And you have this boy coming home and this father come and wrapping his arms around him. He doesn't say, take a bath and then I'll hug you. He just wraps his arms around him. And then he literally puts a robe on, ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. All these are, are symbolic pictures of sonship or daughtership. And I would say to you today that our Jesus offers you a place as a son or as a daughter, if you will but turn from the far country. He doesn't even care what your motives are, I would say. As long as you turn and begin to come home from that far country, he will put a robe on your back and a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet. 
the Father will always come to you. So the Father then kills the fatted calf, and this big party happens. Sometimes I dislike church because we're not uh, ever very rowdy or rambunctious. I used to coach our kids in um, soccer, and uh, when the soccer game was going on, I'm like pacing up and down the field, you know, and I'm, and go over here and you do this, or, or football if I was in the UK. And I, but I'm yelling and I'm rambunctious and I'm lifting my hands and I'm, go over here and you go in and blah, blah, you know. But, but we come into church and suddenly it's like, we go to a game, boy, we can celebrate, can't we? But church, I don't know why. Somehow in America we've gotten this thing where we can't celebrate. But in all three of these stories, you see a celebration when the sheep is found, the lost lamb, a celebration when the coin is found, and then this huge celebration, this huge party when this son who was dead now returns home. Now, this would probably be a celebration without a hangover. It would probably be a celebration without a bunch of regret and shame the following morning. But it is a party, make no mistake. It is a celebration. And one of the things I love that I would actually say, I ask the Lord, Lord, would you give me greater wisdom on this, is what happens on earth, you see in all three of these passages, um, releases celebration and positive feelings of joy in heaven. You see that? What, what happens here literally releases celebratory feelings and a joyous celebration in heaven. That's amazing to me. I literally stopped when I was studying and went, Lord, here at Saltbox, would you let our gatherings be so authentic and so rich that they would cause joyous feelings in heaven? Not so perfect or so slick or so whatever, but, but could what we do here be so real and so full of your spirit that it releases a party in heaven? So this son is coming home, and the, the, the dad kills the fatted calf, and it is like all manner of, of, of happiness and joy is happening. And from the field walks the... Who? The older brother. From the field walks the older brother. And the older brother goes, What is happening? You can feel the anger immediately. The pride, the malice, the greed, the judgmentalism, the bitterness, the resentment. And what's happening, I think, inside this older brother is he's like, I've done everything right. I've followed the rules. I've done everything you said. I've worked for you. I've farmed. I've tended. I never asked for my money early. And you're throwing this big party for this son of yours that about wrecked the family estate? What is your problem? And the older brother refuses to go into the house and join the party. He's literally standing outside, sort of brimming with this anger or hatred. And then the, the, the story comes to this dramatic um, sort of cliffhanger ending where uh, the, the father goes out to meet the older brother and says, Hey, 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 your younger brother was gone. He was dead. And now he's alive. What, what, what gives? Come in and celebrate with us. And Jesus being the masterful storyteller that he is, stops on a cliffhanger ending. It actually reminds me of one of those um, storybooks that they do for, I don't know, maybe elementary or middle school or maybe even high school, I don't know. But uh, the, the fill in your own ending, you know those? Where it's like you get to decide. So Jesus is telling this parable and he literally comes to this cliff. Boom! Watershed. And you're left, the crowd would have literally been sitting there just left wondering, does the younger son 
like actually stay home and make good on his promise and walk with his dad and his family? Or does he bail out again? Does the older son ever like forgive? And like is he ever reunited with his dad and his brother? Or does he stay angry? And Jesus brings this crowd. Remember who's here? Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and teachers. He brings this whole crowd that's listening to him to this watershed, to this point where they have to make a decision. Now, here's the scariest part. I can tell you how the story ends. This story. Because that older brother looked at the father who in this story would have been Christ Jesus. Not Father God, but Christ Jesus. I think the older brother looked at him and went, I hate you. And I'm going to kill you for this. And it wasn't but a couple months later that they did. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law so hated the message of truth and grace that they killed Christ Jesus on a cross. The religious folks, the church people. So Jesus takes this story, he takes the sword of truth, his word, and he divides this crowd into two groups. And there's this big, uh, there's this big sting at the end as, it comes, as, as everyone standing there comes to the realization. And they're literally going, am I the younger brother who's been living out in the wild lands that I'm coming home? Or am I the older brother that's lost at home? And those Pharisees and those teachers knew for sure, without a doubt, that he was saying, y'all are the lost coin at home. You might think you're found, and you might think you're doing it all right, and you might think you're obeying the rules, but you are as lost, if not more lost, than the younger brother who's been living out in the wilds. And you need to get found, and he's being so bold, he's not looking at him and saying, repent, or you brood of vipers, he does that in other places, you whitewashed sepulchers. He literally weaves this thing around and brings them to this point where it's like, you are standing outside, full of anger, full of judgment, full of malice. And each of the people in that crowd that day would have had to make a decision like that watershed. Am I a younger brother or am I an older brother? And most of us, if we're honest, have probably stood in both places. I have. I've stood in both seats. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go standing outside the party. I want to be in the party. I want to be in the house. I want to be eating with Jesus. I want to be celebrating. I don't want to be with the ugly religious folks outside grumbling. In the late 1980s, there was a man named Jim Baker. He was a famous uh, televangelist, a lot of pomp and weirdness. He sat on a gold chair at one point on TV. For sure. Some of you remember that. And uh, serious, yeah. And he, it came to light in the late 80s, I don't know the exact dates, maybe 88 or 89, that um, there was sexual impropriety, there was financial impropriety, and he had this big, uh, this big piece of property called, I think, PTL, not far from here, outside of Charlotte, and um, this whole thing collapsed. And there was this ugly um, court case and whatever that ensued, and he actually ended up in jail. And there's this amazing, amazing, amazing story that I love. Because he's in jail, and he's actually, as it goes, he has a, a mop bucket, and he's literally cleaning the latrines. He's cleaning the toilets, he's mopping the floor, cleaning the bathroom. 
And the guards come in and say, Jim, there's a person here to see you. And he goes, get away. I don't want to talk to anybody. A few more guards came in and said, Jim, you need to come see this person. He again, no, leave me alone. They came a third time. Come, come, Jim, you've got to come. You you must come meet this person. And he walked into a private um, waiting room or something, reception place where the prisoners could meet with people. And there stood Billy Graham. And Billy, as the story goes, opened his arms and embraces the scoundrel. And in this moment, you have the most hated preacher in America, embraced by the most loved and respected preacher in America. And I think I would encourage you to test your own heart in this moment. When you think of people like Jim Baker, When you think of somebody like a Ted Bundy who apparently maybe came to Christ at the end. When you think of people like the Nuremberg trials who some of them apparently gave their life to Christ at the end. Does your heart harden up like the older brother in judgmentalism? Or does it soften with the love and the grace of that father? In the church of today, in America, in the evangelical church scene, I would say we're far more older brothers. In the very beginning of this passage, verse 2 says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. May it be said of Saltbox that we welcome sinners and eat with them. Steve, would you come up? He's going to lead us through communion. And before you do, I'm going to do something. Let's close our eyes and pray for a second. Lord, here we are, probably not very different from the crowd that stood before you on that day where you shared these stories. Father, as eyes are closed this morning, I just want to give opportunity while nobody's looking around for our church family here. The Lord speaking to you, and you would go, you know what, Michael? I got a little of that younger brother in me. There's part of my heart, there's part of my mind, there's part of my being that is living out in the wilds, in the far country. And the Lord's convicting me today. My eyes are closed. I want to invite you to stand up just where you are. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you or let anybody open their eyes, but if that's you, there's part of your heart and part of your life that you would go, it is out in the far country, whatever that means. And then I want to offer something else. If you're here today and you'd go, you know what? I have a tendency to be like that older brother. Judgmental. Critical. 
I live my life more out of duty than out of delight. I'm looking down at grace, gratitude, celebration. If there's something in you like that, would you stay on just your feet? Nobody looking. It's between you and him. It's okay. It's a holy moment. Let me tell you something, church. It's way better to do this now than on the other side of eternity. You might be sitting there going, oh, what will the person next to me think? It doesn't really matter. This is about you and God. I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of people who are angry that pastors didn't preach more boldly when they cross over into eternity. If either of those brothers, if you find yourself in either of those categories, stand and talk to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, may it be said about Saltbox that we welcome sinners and eat with them. Would you all stand with me? This is Steve, one of our elders. He's also my dad. And it's one of the great honors of my life to serve underneath my dad as an elder. And without telling you the whole story, there was a day where I was the young man on the horizon who came home. Stinky. Ugly. And he ran out and he put his arms around me. And he put a coat on my shoulders and a ring on my finger and shoes on my feet. I was dead to them. and had gone seven years and he welcomed me home. I asked him if he'd lead us through communion today. <laughs> Knowing that background. Thank you, David. <clears throat> Thank you, Michael. We're going to celebrate communion as a family this morning and we're going to do that um, by coming forward again as we did the last time we had communion uh, but I want to offer to you and stir up your memory really um, based upon two sort of images and the first one uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 53, and it is verse 6 that says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him your iniquity and mine, the iniquity of us all. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is a profound reality. And if you have not yet fully embraced your tendency to go astray, um, 
the second image still holds true for each one of us. And that is Luke 15, and Michael read it. Verse 20, it says, And as he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That is your father who's looking for you, who's looking for me. Whether you find yourself in the camp of the older brother or the younger one who has squandered his inheritance, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed after he had given thanks. He broke the bread. And then looking at his disciples, he said, this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after he had eaten with his disciples, he took the cup and pouring it out, he said, this is the cup, the blood of the new covenant. There is no sin nor iniquity that the Father clad by image in his sandals and his robe won't overlook because of his provision through the death of his son. Therefore, Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. What shall we remember? What will you remember about Jesus? He's a great teacher, great philosopher. He is our Savior, and he is Lord. He gave everything for you, and he did so because of the Father's love to go out and to seek and to save that which was lost. Father, would you bless these elements, this bread and this cup? Would you use them for your glory? Would you seal in every heart who partakes of these elements a greater working of grace by your Spirit? that we would not point the finger except to Jesus who paid it all. We bless you with great gratitude and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name.